It's Tuesday, August 11th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The United States Postal Service is dealing with the backlog of letters and packages and are facing a crisis that could delay the results of the election in November. A number of cost-cutting policies have been put in place by the new Postmaster General, there are fewer mail trucks on the road, and postal workers are not able to work overtime. The Postal Service is seeking billions in aid from Congress to help stay afloat. But with mail-in voting expected to increase this year, the Postal Service says they still will be able to handle the influx of ballots. Adam Clark Estes, deputy editor with Recode at Vox, joins us for more. Next, the problem with making decisions about kids going back to school is that the research takes time to conduct, and when it comes to children and the virus, there is still so much that remains unknown. A recent report found that more than 97,000 children tested positive in the last two weeks of July. And while they can contract and spread the virus, the question is, to what extent? In the few schools that have reopened, we are seeing pictures of students not wearing masks and hearing about outbreaks as well. Chelsea Janes, national reporter at the Washington Post, joins us for the limited research on children and coronavirus. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. When you have this mail-in voting, it's a uh, it's very susceptible. It's a, something that can be easily attacked by foreign countries and by, frankly, Democrats and by Republicans. Joining us now is Adam Clark Estes, deputy editor with Recode at Vox. Thanks for joining us, Adam. Thanks for having me. We've been hearing a lot about mail-in voting, the post office and the troubles that they're having. And obviously, as November is getting closer, there's a lot being made about delays with the Postal Service. Could mean big delays for the election problems there. The Postal Service has been struggling for quite some time right now, and the coronavirus pandemic has just made everything worse. Adam, tell us what's wrong right now with the Postal Service. Well, the Postal Service is pretty famous for having financial problems, and that's been true for a decade for a few different reasons. But when the pandemic hit, Suddenly, a lot of postal worker employees got sick and they had additional expenses for outfitting post offices. And of course, people started sending a lot less mail, which meant they had a lot less revenue. But we didn't see a real interruption in service until a few weeks ago with the new postmaster general, who's a Trump donor, implemented a number of new policies that basically said there would be no overtime. It had fewer trucks running mail. And pretty quickly, you went from getting your mail on time like you're used to, to waiting days or sometimes weeks for packages and letters to arrive. The new postmaster general, his name is Louis DeJoy. And as you mentioned, he's a Trump donor, longtime Republican fundraiser. He started kind of some restructuring of the Postal Service in a memo that he released. Tell us about some of these restructuring. Like, what is it doing that's complicating things for the Postal Service? Like a lot of things DeJoy has done since he took office, Postal workers don't really seem to understand what's going on. He's not been a very good communicator. The policies that have been slowing down mail so far weren't even communicated to the unions or to a lot of postal workers. They just noticed it started happening. Then on late Friday, a memo was sent that said that there would be restructuring. Leaders of the Postal Service are being reassigned. And again, it's not really clear exactly what's going to happen or how this is going to affect service more. But What was clear to me from talking to a lot of postal leaders and talking to the unions was that these policies are not going over well. They're causing mail to get delayed. And at the end of the day, the USPS just wants to deliver mail and and deliver on time. And they think that's the most important thing that they can be doing now during the pandemic and especially looking ahead to 
November when we expect record numbers of mail-in voting. So what it looks like right now is that there's no overtime, there's a lack of staffing, just like everybody right now, everybody needs more money. So they need some type of, you know, bailout if you want to call it, however, they, they need more cash infusion. But you noted in the article too that the United States Postal Service, even though they've been struggling financially, they haven't taken taxpayer dollars for at least 40 years. Which So they're not like one of these agencies that is always trying to get money, but this is what's happening right now when uh, the CARES Act went through they asked Congress for money. So this is where they're at right now, where they just need some money to help them continue the operations. That's true. And I think that the Postal Service looks at like the airline industry or the hotel industry who got tens of billions of dollars and they didn't get anything. And specifically, they asked for help. And we're told, no, Trump said that he would veto any package back in the spring that included money for the Postal Service. So they didn't get anything. They have agreed on a $10 billion loan that has conditions that a lot of the postal leaders don't like. And with the round of funding that was being discussed last week that didn't make it through, they asked for money in that too. In fact, congressional leaders called the Postmaster General to Capitol Hill to say that he needed to reverse these new policies that were slowing down the mail in order to come to an agreement on a new relief package. And of course, we know now that could not come to an agreement and there would be no new relief round from Congress. Tell me a little bit more about the Postmaster General DeJoy. He's a former logistics executive. He doesn't have any postal service experience. And this is kind of throwing off of a lot of longtime postal workers. Obviously, we were kind of talking about some of the restructuring and new things that he wanted to do, cost-saving measures and whatnot. But tell us a little bit about him and how he's figuring in his new role here. Detroit is really approaching the Postal Service as a business. And as one union leader told me, it's called the United States Postal Service, not the United States Postal Business. And I think that they're a little bit skeptical of the way that he wants to cut costs and you know, potentially disservice in doing so. As for his resume, he very much looks like a, a lot of other Trump appointees. He gave a lot of money to the campaign in 2016. And again, in 2020, he was a top Republican fundraiser as well and comes from the private sector. And he has a lot of money invested in postal service competitors like UPS. So I think that there's a lot of suspicion about his not coming from the postal service or having worked directly for them before. He's the first postmaster general in over two decades that has not risen up to the ranks of the postal service to take that top job. So there's some skepticism for sure. I think that everybody wants to give the guy a chance, but so far he's been in office for a little less than two months. And it sounds like what he's done is not very popular with the workers. And I think it's very popular with the American public who's waiting to get their mail. So right now the U.S. Postal Service has a big backlog of letters and packages and all that. But let's talk about the election because a lot more people are going to do mail-in voting because of the coronavirus health concerns. They don't want to go out to polling places. There's a lot going into that. We know the president has been campaigning against vote by mail, if you want to call it that, just saying there's going to be a lot of fraud and all that. So tell us how these delays, the financial struggles that the Postal Service is having right now, how could that affect the election? There's a lot of confusion around mail-in voting and how it works. And a lot of that is coming from the president who has simultaneously told people that absentee voting is been great and secure, and that mail-in voting is ridden with fraud. Well, there's actually no difference between those two things. It's, they're synonyms for the same service. And the United States Postal Service has been handling ballots for generations. So they say that they're well-prepared to deal with the volume. I can't remember the exact numbers that they gave to me, but they're expecting about twice as many 
mail-in votes this election as they did in the last one. But that comes nowhere near the amount of mail that gets sent to the U.S. Postal Service around Christmas. What can become a problem, though, are delays. And that's a problem because of the way that different states have legislated for the mail-in voting process. In some states, the election board has to have the ballots on election day or before. In other states, they have to be postmarked on election day or before. And even small mistakes can have really big consequences. We saw that in New York City, where there was an issue with the way that ballots were postmarked, and that led to tens of thousands being thrown out. And if you look at swing states like uh, Michigan or Wisconsin, the difference in tens of thousands of votes or even just a few thousand votes could be the difference in the election. The Postal Service workers that I talked to and the U.S. Postal Service itself said that they were confident that they would be able to handle the, the ballots in a timely fashion and that ballots are treated differently than regular pieces of mail. That they're given priority. But again, I think that even with these recent delays and, and news of a shakeup, a lot of people sort of suspect that there's some attempt to sabotage the election by sabotaging the mail-in voting process. And at a certain point, if people don't trust the U.S. Postal Service to handle their ballot correctly, they might not vote. Last election, 31 million people voted by mail. The American Postal Workers Union said there's virtually no fraud when it comes to that. But there is a worry, as you were talking about, about those delays where some critical states might not be called the day of the election because it's going to take time to count all those mail-in ballots. So that's a big concern. But still, overall, it was interesting that you noted in the article that the Postal Service as an independent agency is like one of the most popular agencies. People love it. It has a high approval ratings and people just trust it from dealing with it first forever, right? They just really trust the Postal Service. And it's not just that they love it. They really love it. In different surveys, all the numbers I saw were over 90%. And that's over 90% for Republicans and Democrats. It's equally popular between members of both parties. People also depend on it. There are millions and millions of prescriptions that are being sent through the U.S. Postal Service, especially now during the pandemic. And a delay in someone's prescription can be, in some cases, a life-threatening issue. So I don't think that anybody wants the, the U.S. Postal Service to go away. But for the first time in a long time, that seems like it could be a possibility. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what happens leading up to the election. I feel like we're going to be talking about the Postal Service and mail-in balloting, mail-in voting, all the way through to the election. Congress wants to talk to the Postmaster General to see what he's changing, why he's changing it. So this is going to be an ongoing conversation. Adam Clark Estes, Deputy Editor with Recode at Vox. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. We all want to see schools safely reopened, but we also need to ensure that students, staff, and faculty are safe. The foundation for this is adequate control of transmission at the community. Joining us now is Chelsea Janes, national reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Chelsea. Thank you for having me. There's a lot of schools that are starting to reopen right now. Many of them are doing either hybrid or strictly online learning to start the year off. But there are a lot of schools out there that are also doing in-school learning, just like normal kids reporting to school. We've heard a lot of different stories, and we'll get into some of those. But one of the things that's been so confusing about all this is that some of the research, the limited research that we've done with children and the virus seems to be all over the place. But we do have some numbers. The 
American Academy of Pediatrics and the Children's Hospital Association just had a report out that said more than 97,000 U.S. children tested positive for coronavirus in the last two weeks of July. This is about 300, almost 340,000 cases reported in children since the dawn of the pandemic. So children are capable of getting the virus. And the big question is, is does it transmit? So Chelsea, tell us a little bit about what we know with children and the virus. You're absolutely right. The big question is, do they transmit it? And if they do, are they transmitting it at the same rate as adults? Because as we've all heard over and over, obviously adults can spread it when they're in close quarters. So if children can do the same, then schools are going to be a little bit of a nightmare. The data that was released this week suggests that, like you said, more than a quarter of the cases that we've seen in children since this all started came in the last two weeks of July, which obviously raises a little bit of alarm for people as they're thinking about schools reopening. Why are kids getting this so much now when they weren't before? And and the early verdict seems to be a little bit of we don't know and a little bit of people thinking there's just more testing going on. You know, if we remember early in the pandemic, all those (laughs) months ago, it seemed like you were getting tested really only if you had symptoms or you were already in the hospital trying to figure out what was going on. So while that's still true in some places, it's it's not quite as widespread. I think you're able to get sort of more testing in many places. And a lot of people are probably taking their children before going back to school. Part of the answer is probably that there's just more testing going on. But the question, like you said, remains what happens when these kids do get it? Because by and large, they're not getting as severe cases as adults, and often they're asymptomatic. So that would seem to suggest they're at less risk, but they could spread it. There are children who get very ill. So it's just a lot of speculation at this point with, you know, a few more numbers kind of being added to the pile every day. That does seem to be the consensus. The general consensus is that kids do not get it as seriously as adults, which is, I mean, if you want to call it the silver lining, that's the silver lining. They're not getting it as bad. There are cases where kids do have to be hospitalized and all that, but still, as we've been saying, the transmitter factor is what's important because then you call into question, you know, the status of teachers and other people that could be vulnerable that are working with the kids. That's where everybody really wants to nail it down there. And let's take a look at a little bit of the research because, as I mentioned earlier, too, it's all over the place. One batch of research says this, one batch of research says that, but the evidence does suggest that the coronavirus does affect younger children differently than older children, still in the child category, you know, under 18. The older you get, obviously, it just starts hitting you differently. That seems to be what people are finding out now. Yeah. And there might be a couple of reasons for that. Again, one of the, the big theories of why we're seeing a lot more cases in teenagers, which we are, one of the theories is they're just the ones that are out and about now. Older adults have heard that they're at risk. They're staying home. You know, it's summertime and that's sort of the genre of person that's getting restless and going out and saying, I'm probably not at great risk. And for a lot of teenagers, that is probably true. So they might just be out and about more, which could account for the fact that we're seeing them represent a greater percentage of infections. But what we have seen in older children is that they can have more severe outcomes in some cases than younger children. And what I think people are trying to figure out is whether that's just sort of, you know, a quirk of the data right now, or if that is actually representing a pattern that tells us something. But there does seem to be a difference in how the age groups are affected. And more and more lately, we're seeing that sort of older teenagers hit getting the virus the way that adults get it, as opposed to the way that younger children get it, and therefore having more severe experiences. In very young children, though, there have been a couple studies, and one of the studies said that children younger than five with mild to moderate cases of COVID-19, they had 
higher levels of the virus in their upper respiratory tract and their noses and all. And then the more extreme examples that we've heard of kids coming down with this multi-system inflammatory syndrome. They said it's similar to Kawasaki disease. So mm -hmm. these are kind of some more of the extreme examples still illustrating that a young child can get some severe reactions to this. The multi-system inflammatory syndrome is super rare. I mean, even, you know, kids get COVID a lot less than adults. And even in that subset, this syndrome is really rare. But when it hits, it can be pretty devastating. And, and there have been deaths. And in some kids, they're presenting with actual cardiac damage already just from this syndrome, which is rare in children. So it can be pretty severe. And, and there's been a lot of kids who've had to deal with a, a lot of time in the ICU because of that. And then there are kids who just get COVID and it's really whacks them. But again, the numbers on that remain really small, which I think is encouraging that by and large, so far, kids are having much less extreme experiences. But unfortunately, one of the things that we are seeing is that Hispanic children and Black children are having to go to the hospital a lot more than white kids with COVID. And that's something we're seeing in adults too. But it's scary that those disparities are sort of trickling down and obviously yeah. has implications for schools and stuff like that. You know, the big problem is that research to this effect takes so much time and we're going yeah. through the pandemic as we're going. So any new little sliver of something comes out, but that doesn't necessarily make it definitive. So it's so hard to create public policy around those things. It does seem like it is relatively safe for schools to reopen. They have to take those proper precautions Kids should probably be wearing masks and they probably should try to social distance. But let's talk about a few examples of things we've seen already. We've heard about stories out of Georgia, schools near Atlanta with crowded hallways of some kids wearing masks, other kids not wearing masks. There was another school where I guess a parent took a picture of about 80 students. None of them were wearing masks. Right. You know, and then there's some other cases of overnight camps where kids got sick, too. Tell us. Let's talk about some of those. Yeah, I mean, one of the most high-profile ones right now is, is North Paulding High School in Georgia, where, you know, a student took a picture of crowded hallways, and a few days later, the school announced that it's going to have to shut down for the first two days of the week to clean because they've had nine COVID cases. And I think that, along with that other high school you mentioned, basically, we're just seeing a lot of pictures of teenagers not wearing masks and being in schools where they're crowded in hallways like you would expect. And it seems so far that the outcome is also what we'd expect, which is that so far there's not any stories of horrible, severe cases, but there are enough cases popping up in those places that those schools are having to shut down. They're having to clean. It is interrupting their schedule. And I think that that is more of what you're going to see as this goes along, is that it's not going to necessarily be, knock on wood, that you're having these devastating outbreaks. But what you might see is that you're going to have a dozen or so kids test positive and suddenly everyone's going to have to quarantine and, you know, you're going to just have to kind of slow things down. So I think what we're seeing early on is probably a sign of things to come, not necessarily in that there's this incredible danger to every student, but just that it's going to be sort of a herky-jerky process to keep schools open. And there's probably going to be a lot of time spent doing remote learning. Chelsea Janes, national reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. 
I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is your Daily Dive.